Welcome to Sweden in Transition, the podcast that meets change makers in Sweden. In a world in need of urgent reinvention, they do or see things differently. I am Sonia Lehmann and today I meet Pella Thiel. Pella is a maverick ecologist, co-founder of the Swedish Transition Network, Ecoside Sweden and Rights of Nature Sweden. In 2019, WWF Sweden appointed Pella as the Environmental Hero of the Year in the category Biodiversity. The same year, Greta Thunberg was appointed as Young Environmental Hero of the Year. The award was handed out by King Carl Gustav himself. Hi, Pella. Welcome. Hi. Thank you. In the podcast intro, I say, in a world in need of urgent reinvention. So the question I'd like to ask you is, what you think is wrong in the world we live in today? What is our main problem? What's our main problem? Yeah, there could be many answers to that question. But I think one of the main problems is that our ideas of who we are, our place in the world is kind of wrong. We are mistaken. Indigenous peoples or First Nations people, a lot of them say that we have lost the original instructions around what it means to live in harmony with nature. So that's what I'm working with a lot, how we govern ourselves in the world. They are not aligned with the laws of nature. That's why we end up with things like the sixth mass extinction and uh, catastrophic climate change and um, even wars and conflicts. You are a systematic activist. What does it mean? <laughs> what does it mean? Yeah, that's what I wrote on my website, isn't it? So I think when we talk about sustainability issues, it's often that we look at it as something that we can add on to society to make it work better. But that's not even relevant, I think, because we are now in need of a societal transition, which means a system-wide change in who we are and what we do. So that means that it becomes a, a cultural issue or an existential issue where we have to reframe deep fundamental ideas uh, around reality. And that kind of informs what I do. Before we started the podcast, we discussed how we tend to look at issues in a segmented way. Some organization used to work on saving animals and other would work on social issues. Is that what you mean? Instead of trying to look at and solve issues one by one, mm -hmm. trying to approach the subject in a holistic way? Yeah. And you can do that while focusing on a separate sphere. Like, so if you work with food, for example, you can do that in a, in a transformative way. I think you have to be aware of how you work with food for it to be transformative. So for example, we have food waste. There is a problem. And then we're looking for a solution to the problem. But that's not very helpful at the moment because we are in a situation which is more like a predicament. If you work with food waste, for example, it's not enough to just try to diminish food waste. But you have to think about, so why are we in a system that produces food waste? And to work on it at a systemic level, kind of, mm -hmm. if it makes sense. Yeah. How was born your calling? How did you start working on those issues? 
Uh, well, I love nature and I'm an ecologist and I saw what's happening in the world that we kind of know that we are making species go extinct, for example, but we keep doing it and not just keep doing it, it's, ca- it's actually accelerating. And I started working with the environmental movement and got increasingly frustrated because it's like we are putting small plasters on wounds that we see, but we don't stop to reflect on why do we keep seeing larger and larger and more and more wounds. And it's not just enough to put plasters on them, but you have to think about where they come from. In 2019, you received this award from mm-hmm. the king. What was it that you'd done that led you to this recognition in Sweden? So the frustration I spoke about earlier kind of led me to ask fundamental questions around why is it like it is? What can be done in a more transformational way? And that's where I ended up working on ecocide as an international crime and rights of nature. Those are international movements, but I, together with a lot of other people, I want to say I'm not alone in this whatsoever. It's a movement. But I think I'm kind of visible in the space. And yeah, that's the work that they recognized. I think it's great that that it was recognized. And also surprising because those ideas, when I started working with them, especially rights of nature, it felt like I can put my whole life into this work and I will never, ever see the difference because at that time in 2012, 2013, it felt so far away from what anyone was thinking about. Two days ago, the Financial Times had an article on um, legal personality for animals. And I can't believe how fast this very fringe idea has become mainstream. Um, yeah. So let's go on to ecocide. This concept grows, but is still not very well known by mm-hmm. most of people. So can you define it for us? Yeah. Ecocide is the mass damage and destruction of ecosystems. And it's currently legal and also part of business models uh, all over the world. So it's not strange that we see destruction of ecosystems and of natural cycles and climate change and everything, because that's actually business as usual. And that's what we have to shift. This idea comes from a a British barrister, Polly Higgins, who is sadly not with us anymore. But she thought, how can it be illegal to steal an apple, for example? While it's not illegal to destroy whole fish populations or whole tracts of rainforests and it should be a crime. She started to try to understand how could it work at an international level because the actors committing such crimes are very often international corporations and there is no rules at an international level. So she started to look at the only criminal law that we have internationally, which is the Rome Statute that governs uh, the International Criminal Court, where currently four crimes are possible to prosecute. She found out that ecocide was part of the negotiations when the Rome Statute was negotiated, which is not very far back. It's in the 90s. So her work and our work is about uh, putting that missing crime where it should be. 
Can you remind us the four crimes? The four crimes are uh, war crimes, crimes of aggression, crimes against humanity and genocide. So we are proposing that also ecocide should be there. At the moment, ecocide is actually a grave threat to human rights globally. So it really fits in in those, where they are often called crimes against peace. When you destroy habitat, often conflict arises. Yeah, there are many examples of ecocides that led to pollution of water sources, for mm-hmm. example. So it's always linked, human yeah. rights and rights of nature. Yeah. Ecocide sounds like genocide. I think genocide was created after the Second World War. Maybe the time has come that we recognize this new crime. I think so. So genocide as a concept was constructed after the Second World War. But it wasn't until the 90s that we constructed kind of the international framework to deal with it. What's the difference between rights of nature and ecocide? We are now living in a culture which is very anthropocentric. It views humans as the crown of creation and that our role and even our duties to dominate and control the world. That's what we also build our idea of development on. And rights of nature is shifting that idea. So this is really a paradigm shifting idea, challenging uh, fundamental assumptions around the role of, of humans in the world. And I think that's a necessary shift. But you don't have to make that shift to have ecocide as a crime, because that crime can actually work very well within an anthropocentric view of the world. So, you know, humans are also dependent on ecosystems and we want to safeguard nature for the sake of humans. So ecocide as a crime, you can do that without viewing nature as having intrinsic rights to exist. But if you view nature as having the right to exist, You also need ecocide as a crime because a right to life has to be guarded that there is a crime to take that life. So, for example, your right to life is guarded by homicide being a crime. Quite often today, corporations, they can be aware that there is a risk that there will be some kind of sanction if they destroy nature in some way. But very often that sanction is put on the corporation as an organization and it is in the shape of fines, for example, and you can insure against that and you can put it in your budget. So ecocide is a crime is to shift that to criminal law where you always have a personal responsibility. So someone of superior responsibility in the company or uh, in um, a political system where someone has to give a permit, for example, uh, has to take responsibility for damage done. And that is a very different um, way of dealing with it. And personally, I have this picture of, I don't think anyone wants to destroy ecosystems. But if you're a corporation, your main driving force is to create profit. That's why, I mean, that's your raison d'être. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, today, it can be the case that you, for example, if you are a CEO, And you have a project that you want to pre- present to the board. And you can say that this project is presumably very profitable, but there's also risk that it will destroy the environment, destroy the water, for example. 
today, if you say that, you know, I'm a CEO, but I'm also a father. And I know that if we destroy the water here, a lot of people living here, they will be out of clean water. And I think, you know, it's not worth it. Your board of the company will say, okay, but we are not here to take care of the water. We are here to make profit for the company. So you can, you know, we will get a new CEO because we are here for the shareholders. If ecocide was an international crime and you were the CEO, you could say, I'm worrying about the watershed here. And I think that you should do that as well, because this is potentially an international crime if we would ruin the water. And I can go to jail and so can you, who is uh, chairman of the board, for example. So I don't think we should do this. And that would be a very different explanation towards the shareholders because everyone will understand that you're not willing to risk going to jail for something the company is doing. So um, I think it's a very powerful shift in the logic. Just the risk of this happening will will change the game. And that logic is also influencing the values of society. So what was once legal and profitable now becomes a crime, which means that both financial resources will be shifted to to more healthy activities, but also our values towards the living world will shift. And that's, I think, maybe the, the most profound shift of Ikusai law, that we, it will help us to view ourselves as uh, participants in the living world in another way than we are at the moment. It's, and that's why it's a cultural shift as well. And where are we now in terms of the way the international law is evolving or the discussions? And um, I think countries have taken steps, pioneering. So maybe you can give us examples of countries that... We have France. <laughs> it's great to speak to you now because this last year has been a roller coaster. It's so much happening and it's so fast. So what was once almost unthinkable is suddenly uh, both possible and maybe imminent because we are in a space now where we don't really know how to deal with the destruction, I think. So um, less than a year ago, two of the state parties of the Rome Statute, uh, Vanuatu and the Maldives, which are states that, you know, they are, they have nothing to lose because they are losing their very territory. Because of increase of the, of the sea level. Yeah, exactly. Because of climate change. So they put this on the table in The Hague and said that this is something that we have to discuss. The Pope also mentioned ecocide as an international crime, as something that has to happen to care for creation. And uh, here in Sweden, the labor movement has been coming out really strongly this year, saying that this is how we want to deal with climate change, to give ourselves new rules with ecocide as an international crime. And what really shifted the game, I think, is uh, actually uh, Macron, who said he installed this um, 
Citizens Group for the Climate. What's it called in French? La Convention Citoyenne pour le Climat. Oui. And they voted on more than a hundred different policy issues for the climate. And the one that was most strongly supported was ecocide as an international crime. It's good if international perception is that he's endorsing it. And I think he was forced to do it because the Greens, they uh, had such strong support, wasn't it, in the in the elections this summer. And he was asked uh, around ecocide as a crime, and he said that he was willing to support it as an international crime. I think he was definitely skeptical about having it in the French legislation. But he said he wanted to work for it mm. on an international level. For us who work on an international level for ecocide as an international crime, that's really powerful. But then Belgium, who took almost 500 days to form a government, and they have now formed a, a government and made a governmental policy program. And in there, they are saying that they want to work for ecocide law, both nationally and internationally. So that's even stronger, an EU state is now saying that they want to work for it. And that kind of shifts the game. In Sweden, we have a very strong legacy from Olof Palme, who was the prime minister that gathered the international community for the first conference on, on the environment in Stockholm in 72, where Palme mentioned the word Ecocide, saying that it had to have much more um, weight in the international and the UN. And now that is almost 50 years ago. And the, you know, what we have seen during the last half century is basically destruction of the living world. And the government of Stockholm is now preparing to have a Stockholm plus 50 conference. So the next UN conference on sustainability might well happen in Stockholm in 2022. We are viewing that as a great opportunity to galvanize international support. The beautiful thing of having it as an, at an international level is that that would change the game for everyone. And since we have now an economy that is international and global in a way that wasn't even thinkable back in 72. That is kind of um, the level where you have to work and the level where the actors aren't even, you know, the most powerful actors aren't even states, but they are corporations and they are not under democratic influence. And actually, basically, it's an economy without rules. It's a cowboy economy. Um, so that's the beauty of working on that level. I still had in mind interesting story, but they, maybe they are not ecocide, they're rights of nature. For example, in the US, Lac Erie. Yeah. Having rights of nature acknowledged in legal system, that's a movement that's happening very fast globally now, uh, both on national level and local level and regional level and even international level. I'm, I'm working on um, having rights of nature included in them. Convention for Biodiversity, for example, at the moment. It takes different shapes in different countries and different settings, which is very interesting, I think. It certainly speaks of an idea whose time has come, that it's not uh, one-fits-all model, but it's actually 
So in the US, for example, and Lake Erie, that was a local referendum on the rights of Lake Erie. It came after a situation where the lake, which is surrounded by industrial agriculture, so there's a lot of runoff from agricultural land. So you have a lot of poisonous algae blooms in it. And a few years back, the water, which is used of several hundred thousands of people, wasn't drinkable anymore. I think it speaks volumes that if, you know, if humans cannot drink the water, like one of our very most basic needs, then you know that something has something, you have to do something else. So there was a group called Toledoans for Safe Water. They um, worked for the rights of Lake Erie. And that decision from the community, from the town, to say that now this lake has legal rights, it's now very heavily disputed, of course. So this is still, um, it's still a process. You challenge enormous interests. It's not easy. Have they managed to make the water drinkable again? I mean, it's, it was once, as far as I know, it was once when, when pollution was so severe that they couldn't drink the water. But it's a systemic, it's an ongoing deteriorating process that they wanted to shift. It, there hasn't been any concrete action in, in the right direction. And do you have another example of rights of nature where there were tangible benefits? It's a paradigm shifting idea and it's very new. It's, so the oldest, larger decision was from the constitution of Ecuador, which actually included rights of nature in the constitution back in 2008. So that's 12 years ago, which is very short time in, in legal systems. Their constitutional court is at the moment reviewing what that means. And that's a very interesting process. It's exciting what will come out of it. Otherwise, I think one of the more well-grounded decisions is from New Zealand. And it's interesting to notice that both Ecuador and New Zealand are countries with strong indigenous populations. So the idea of people as parts of a living whole is very strong. And that's also why, why those decisions came about, I think. And uh, in New Zealand, there are several entities uh, like a, a forest, a former national park and um, a mountain and a river that has been acknowledged as legal personalities. The Fanganui River, one of the large rivers in New Zealand, there they have very interesting mechanisms because that's then it's not enough just saying that it, something has rights. You have to also have a, uh, mechanisms to safeguard those rights and to have a river, for example, represented in human legal systems. And in New Zealand, they have um, appointed two guardians. So one from the Maori, the indigenous population, and the one from the state, who are the human faces of the river. And there is also um, a group of people who are monitoring the health of the river, and there is a budget to uh, safeguard the health. So, um, yeah. So it's interesting to see concretely what does it mean yeah. to make it work yeah. beyond just uh, changing the law. Exactly. On your website, you said, I have too many hats for it to be really dressy. Yeah. Uh, so tell <laughs> us about your other hats. And My other hats. <laughs> other fights. Oh, I don't fight. I don't like to fight. That's not what I do. I think it's not nice to fight. I'm just playing. 
but those are ecocide as a crime and rights of nature are like my big hats now. But uh, for a long time, I was also working with the transition movement, which is about building local resilience. So how can our local communities work in a world where we don't rely on, for example, fossil fuels? If we acknowledge that nature has rights, what would that mean locally? It has to do with our most basic needs, like I know you're working with food, for example, which is a key issue for the transition movement. Where do you think Sweden is really a pioneer? And where do you think maybe there are things that are disappointing? So this brings us back to where we started, actually, because I think the Swedish model of working with sustainability has to do with finding solutions to problems. But we don't have problems. We have a predicament, I mean, a systemic situation that is uh, unhealthy. The Swedish model is mainly working with techno fixes, and we are good at that, and we think that we are uh, good So if you make an evaluation of countries, how we reach the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, Sweden is in the very top. I think we are in the number one, actually, which is kind of very disturbing as at the same time we are all consuming as if there were four Earths. We have among the largest ecological footprints in the world. So I think that gap is speaking volumes around how we view sustainability work actually so basically i believe that we are hypocrites but since we are very successful hypocrites that also inhibits real systemic action on those issues so we consume too much we don't take a responsibility around our consumption and also we don't take a responsibility of our own landscape our own ecosystems in Sweden I mean look at the forests that we call forests but they aren't forests anymore they're actually plantations and we have um, a systematic um, extinction of species in Swedish forests which is horrible yeah I don't know I (laughs) I think it's uh, very interesting why we are saying that we are so good in sustainability because we have actually since 20 years we have environmental goals in Sweden And we don't reach them. And we know that, you know, year by year, we reach one and a half of uh, our environmental goals and still we think we are good. I don't know why. But there is this goodwill and this uh, environmental consciousness. As long as we deal with it on a technological level. So as long as we say that we can switch the light bulbs or we can have other cars or, I mean, I guess there's a lot of great work actually done on, for example, public transportation. A lot of nice research and and development work on better materials and things like that. But we have to shift how our economic model work, for example, our view of ourselves as very environmentally friendly is actually standing in the way. Um, Yeah. You were mentioning that uh, those countries who have a native indigenous people... Mm often have a cultural ability to feel like they are belonging to a wider whole. It's the case here in Sweden with Sami people, the only indigenous people in Europe. Yeah. So how do you think that can influence maybe the culture? Mm, That's a great question. I need to think more. I think we need to think more about that. The Sami people, they are not a strong voice 
in the Swedish society in the way that, for example, the Maori people is in, in New Zealand. So the Swedish society basically colonized Sápmi, the Samilands. And there is a lot of um, hurt there still around that process that needs to be dealt with. And there's a lot of conflicts still between Sami people and, and the Swedish society. And actually, you know, the colonization is ongoing with forestry, with um, especially mining projects mm. in the north. So, yeah, how can that Sami voice be heard? It's a very interesting issue today. Because the violations has been so recent and so severe. Sami people, they often have to speak for their interests and their rights. And that means that the worldview that is in their culture isn't that visible. So if there's something I would long for is that the Sami worldview is something that's really needed now. They have been so sustainable. The traces of Sami culture isn't there because they are so part of the landscape. So you can't view that they are even part of the landscape, which is a huge uh, problem for Sami people when they want to prove that they have been part of the landscape for thousands of years, but you can't see it. That's how sustainable they were. Northvolt is this um, company, they are building a big factory in the mm. north of Sweden yeah. to produce electric batteries mm -hmm. and they want to do it all sustainable. Yeah. But for me, that's the perfect example of what you were mentioning just before, about two visions of sustainability. One is how can we provide for our lifestyle we have today, trying to find sustainability fix. Yeah. The mine are in the north, so there are probably conflict around the land, I would imagine. Yeah. When I ask around, everybody says, no, everybody's happy because it's going to provide employment mm. and it's a way to valorize the territory and to bring wealth to this northern area. I'm just wondering, is this the, the right vision for sustainability in the future? There is no end to how much extraction we want to do. Because we have an idea around development, which is that humans are the crown of creation and development is to grow the human sphere. So the human control of not just the earth, but the universe. So we have plans now about mining the moon, for example, which is totally in line with this idea of development and expansion. It's an extractive model. It doesn't have a way of saying it's enough. I, think, I just think we have to think about that. We have to rethink what we mean when we say that that we want to develop. So that's kind of in the core of sustainable development as well. So if we say we want sustainable development, but we know that development at the moment is very destructive, then what do we mean when we say sustainable development? Mm. I think we have to not look so much at sustainable and look more on development because we have to shift what we mean when we say development. And that's to me, that's the transformation in the sustainable development world today. We are mostly discussing how we can take less from the world and how we can take in a more efficient way. And to First Nation people, they would say that's not what it's about. If you want to have a relationship 
then you can't just take. You have to also think about what you give. And as a culture, that thought isn't even accessible to us because there's no one there to give to. There is no one else. There's just objects and resources. So the rest of the the living world is just objects to us. And that's what Rights of Nature is about, that you say, that's a mistake. There is a lot of subjects, a lot of beings with interests and needs and rights. And what do we want to give back now to them? When we have taken so much, what do we want to give back? That's, I think, the transformation that we need to be in now. Mm. It's a real mind shift. What we need is an alternative myth. We had this growth that was our belief system. And we need to define this new myth so people can actually engage with it. If you're going to leave something, it's for something else. Years and years of sustainability have been about you need to do less of. And we need to start to be saying, but here is what you're going to get instead. Yeah. And it's a world of interaction. So it's shifting maybe a paradigm of having to a paradigm of being. But we need to give flesh to this new dream if we want people to engage. Exactly. The young people today, they really experience this development as meaningless because they see the risks to their own future. And then as long as we don't give flesh to that myth, as you say, They are going to think, or I meet a lot of young people who say that if it's about taking less, then it's better that I'm not here. Or if humans were not here, everything Mm. would be good. And that's very, very sad, I think. Yeah, lots of young couples saying that they're not sure they want to have kids. Yeah. Instead, I think we can gather around what do we want to give now? And what would it mean to understand ourselves as participants in this living whole which is so beautiful instead of maybe in the best case scenario saying i'm sorry we can instead say thank you for everything that i receive and i now want to give something back which can be i don't know just basically thank you is a good start that's something to give which is quite profound And also, I think humans can give a lot of beauty. What if you knew that you were loved by the world? You're glowing. You seem like a very happy person. What brings you joy? Just so we are, we meet now in October, which is the period in Sweden of die back in a way. I mean, nature is dying and going to rest during the winter. And imagine, I mean, it does that in a very beautiful way. So beautiful. So just taking a pause and just taking in how beautiful the world is gives me joy. And also other people working for the larger whole is that gives me a lot of joy. And maybe as you were mentioning, how does it feel to feel loved? By the creation, maybe you feel just the satisfaction of doing what you feel is right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And all the flow that comes from doing that. I mean, because it's actually also tapping into a knowledge and a, a power that's so vastly larger than your own. 
And when you do that, it's kind of like everything moves in a very surprising and fast way. I always ask at the end uh, if you want to share a quote and or a book that you've read. Oh, I have many quotes, but maybe the one that I can share is from Thomas Berry. He's a Catholic priest, one of the people who formulated the ideas uh, around rise of nature. And he said that the universe is not a collection of objects. It's a communion of subjects. And if I could maybe share a book as well, I'm very inspired by a South African lawyer who was inspired by Thomas Berry and his name is Cormac Cullinan and he has written a book that's called Wild Law and that's really a seminal book behind the uh, rights of nature movement. Great. Mm. Thank you very much. Thank Bella. you. Thank you. Thanks a lot to Pella Thiel for this conversation and thank you all for listening. If you like this episode, please put some stars on your podcast app, share it on your favorite social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and send me a message with a comment or an idea for our next guest. Liersch!